welcome to the Layer 8 Podcast Season 3, culminating with the Layer 8 Conference on Saturday, October 8th in Providence, Rhode Island. This season, we'll have conversations with social engineers and OSINT investigators who will tell their stories. We hope you enjoy them. Welcome to another episode of the Layer 8 Podcast. I am here today with our guest, Chris Russell. Welcome to this episode, Chris. Thanks. Really excited to be here. For the benefit of our listeners, could you please give them a little bit of an introduction into who you are? Sure. Currently, I'm the CISO T0 group, but uh, before I got into cybersecurity, I started off my career in in Intel, uh, human Intel to be specific, so human intelligence collection. Did that for about 10 plus years uh, globally, internationally. And towards the end of that, seeing how many of the things I was involved in involved trying to get people that could compromise systems or networks to get on things. I saw the kind of the light that InfoSec cybersecurity is kind of the, the, the next wave and kind of a, a good pivot point for me. So got out of that world and kind of reinvented myself into this world and, uh, you know, a lot of stuff carry over. So I, I went got back to my master's and, you know, worked, you know, my way up to the engineering ranks and technical side, and then, you know, kind of landed in leadership. And so now I've made it to CISO and, uh, and I like to kind of sit back and not necessarily go through my journey necessarily, but talk about some of the things that maybe made you know, big changes and, 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 you know, really benefited and helped me kind of get ahead because uh, I feel like any, anytime we can share those stories into anyone that they can use that, put in their tool belt. It's a, it's a good thing. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to talking to you a little bit with some of your experiences in the military and some of your human intelligence. Uh, but early on in this, if people want to find out more about you, your Twitter account, am I right by saying it is at Krooster, C-R-0-0-S-T-E-R. So hopefully people can catch up on that. And you also have a lot of information on your GitHub page, which is also the same as well, github.com slash CR00STER. What type of stuff do you like to put on your GitHub page? Uh, So that GitHub page is mainly talks and and demos and podcasts and different things I've done there, just so it's kind of one-stop shop. A little bit about me too, you know, so people, if they do want to, decide they didn't want to talk to me, I can be like, well, go check that out. This is what I've done. So I either fit or I don't fit for what you want. But uh, yeah, not the highest technical GitHub page. I've got, you know, internal stuff for that with GitHub and GitLab, but that that public one is mainly, uh, I guess, my bragging page, if you will. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty great with a whole bunch of information on there. Like, for example, one of the things that I see on there that you are doing is is hacking health. What, What is that about? Yeah. So, um, you know, I've always been someone who's been into fitness, you know, I, I think, you know, healthy mind, healthy body. I'm at my best mentally when I'm my best physically. I've always kind of, you know, done that in the military. It was, you know, kind of, you know, ingrained in me to get up, work out and do whatever. But there's times where I slacked on it and I got unhealthy and I was really out of shape and, and my life wasn't good. So, and then I, I, I remember this uh, over, you know, some kind of awakening and I go, I need to get back to that. And then I feel great when I'm back in it. So, works so well for me. I feel like I think I'm more effective during the day. I get more done. My, my, my life's just really better. So I really try and promote it and push it. And to be honest, I'm just a cheerleader. So I'm on Twitter. Like anyone who's like, I lifted a weight today. I'm like, awesome. Go kick butt. I just, I just want to <laughs> tell people keep going, you know, just keep doing it. You know, you, you got people behind your back pushing you um, because we don't do a lot of, you know, social media is so negative and just not a lot of positive reinforcement that half of my Twitter experience is really just cheerleading people on no matter what they're doing. If they walked a mile or they ran a marathon, I'm going to tell them how much they kicked ass that day. <laughs> it's always great when we get to see the, the positives. Another side of the positive, I see you're an ambassador for Sneak. What does that role consist of? 
Sure. So um, that was a product that was, you know, I, I brought on and was using on our CI/CD pipeline and our SDLC. And I, it just, it worked so well. It was so dummy proof. I got it things set up. I, I got it, you know, running. I learned it and then taught everyone. And I just, for the first time, I'm like, this is just does what it says it's going to do. Uh, being, I mean, as a CISO and, and be a VP of engineering before that, AppSec was such a big concern of mine all the time. And to have something that kind of gives me those answers and helps me get ahead of vulnerability management, gets me ahead of container security, gets me ahead of uh, infrastructures of code security, you know, all these things that used to have to piecemeal and manually look at and find out about after the fact. When I found something that was, you know, working, I got excited about it. And I don't remember how they reached out to me, but I think I mentioned it once or twice, like, hey, this solved the big problem for me. And then we just kind of got, talk, got talking. And, and basically what it is, I'm more of an AppSec ambassador. Uh, their program is really not about, hey, go sell our product. It's not that at all. It's, hey, do talks on AppSec because it's a problem and it's gonna to continue to be a problem. We happen to be a solution for it. And if we come up in the conversation, cool, whatever, but we want you to just really focus on getting, you know, people out there understanding the, the problems we have with AppSec. So that's kind of how that transpired. And it's a, they're a great company. I, I'm really impressed with them from a, not just a product standpoint, but a moral and ethical standpoint. They're buying people up left and right. I think they're in a good trajectory. So I'm just glad to be involved really, you know, in that regard. Yeah, it's the main thing is just AppSec. You know, you, I can be vendor neutral and they'll still be like, hey, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll fly out to go do that talk because you're going to really stress how AppSec is a, is a heartburn point that people are kind of glossing over. And looking through your GitHub page, I see that you have given a lot of really interesting look presentations, including at DEF CON, uh, CISO Thursday. Uh, let's see, you got B-Sides, DFW, CISO Diaries. There's a whole lot of great information in there if others want to check that out as well. Yeah, thanks. That's that's a lot of like, how do you get into cybersecurity and some of the gatekeeping problems we have and how we need to give people better training and better on ramps and stuff like that. It's such a big problem right now that I don't, I'll talk about that a thousand times. I, don't, I won't get bored of that because that's a problem that we just need to all get together and solve and get over and fix because it's just hurting ourselves not to have the bodies we need. And you also mentioned that you have a background in the military, and I think in specifically in military intelligence. So first, thanks for your service at the military. What is your background in the military? What was your, your job there? So I was a human intelligence collector. That's someone who basically talks to people and gathers information. There's a bunch of different ways, you know, source operations, interrogations, strategic debriefings, screenings. You know, there's, there's a bunch of mediums, but you, you know, you learn all those, you learn all those uh, techniques, and then depending on where you're assigned and what you're doing, you're using one or all of them. Um, typically, the human collectors also learn language, mine happened to be Arabic, so I went to the Defense Language Institute back in 2000. I was there actually when 9-11 happened, and being in the Arabic course and, and, and all the meds that transpired, you know, I kind of knew, <laughs> I kind of knew my future was heading me directly to the Middle East pretty, pretty quickly, and that, that did come true. Uh, but yeah, the human intelligence piece is interesting because it's uh, unlike other intelligence kind of jobs and whatnot, it's not really uh, technologically based. It's not SIGINT, it's not, you know, it's not uh, GeoInt, it's not based on satellites or or uh, communication intercept or anything. It's, it's just humans, you know, and so you spend a lot of time. Uh, studying human behavior, human motivation, understanding what people are, you know, when they're when they're telling the truth, when they're lying, you know, you go through ways of testing them. Uh, you kind of do a lot of introspection at the same time as well. Uh, so that experience for me over the 10 plus years I was doing that 
it's not something I use on a daily basis. I'm not, you know, interrogating employees or whatnot, but I've picked up these things that I feel like help me on the business world a lot because I kind of can cut through some of the, the BS. I can cut through a little bit of the nonsense. I kind of can get to the truth a little bit quicker. Um, and then I also, uh, because you know, the other part of Intel is you write reports. If you don't write a report, it didn't happen. So you can be James Bond and you can get whatever cool stuff. If you don't put in a report, no one knows about it, then who cares? So the ability to communicate after the fact what's important, what's relevant, who needs to know it, that was, a, again, another skill that is, uh, it was based on Intel, but it, it definitely translates to the business world. And again, I think it's helped me be successful you know, at, at many levels. One of my first questions in the social engineering angle is that you were sent to a hostile area. How did you build up trust with somebody in order to get intelligence from them? Or did you not build trust and you just forced it out of them? Yeah, so that, that's that's a that's an excellent question because you know if you, you know, human operations is basically social engineering, it's just like on steroids, really. And so at the time, we weren't even supposed to say that word. Like, don't don't even use that word. It's like the word it wasn't common on the street. So like, they don't don't introduce it. Don't know, you know we don't want people know you know that this is even a thing. But I spent a fair amount of time uh, not just studying Arabic. I specifically studied also the Iraqi dialect. I was around you know people from you know Iraq for a long time even before I was deployed into it. And I got into the kind of the the cultural psycho psychological you know mindset that you know helped me befriend people and kind of win over people. But you know going into a combat zone, which was Iraq back in like 2003 timeframe, it wasn't your typical combat zone because in a way they were actually kind of, you know, I'll say glad it's not necessarily black and white like that, but some people were like, okay, our life's going to change for the better. They're not coming here trying to do this or that. Unfortunately, you know, there was a lot of friction from both sides and there ended up being a lot of uh, violence and escalation of force and whatnot. And that kind of ruined that. Um, so like the initial, like, Hey, the Americans are coming biz- build Disneyland in two days. When that didn't happen, it, it quickly, you know, kind of went to a more traditional whatever. For me, you know, I was always a very empathetic person that will sit down and listen to what you have to say. And regardless of the situation, if you're right, you know, it's like, you know what, I agree with you. You're, you're, you're right. You've got a good point of view. you got whatnot, whether, whether it's an interrogation or a screening or whatnot. And so I was always very fair, very open-minded. And, and that, I think that resonates across cultures and languages when someone's you know they're used to someone coming in and just going to start screaming at them or yelling at them if it's an interrogation or if it's a source operation they're just going to flip a badge like oh i'm in the cia tell me what you got and i'll give you some money and and kind of treat like dirt that just wasn't my style my style is to literally sit down and like really understand who the person is where they're coming from if i can help them or not if they can help me or not and and, and, you know, form a kind of a real connection, if you will. Now I'm saying all this and I'm, I'm making it sound like I'm just like, you know, maybe more ethically uh, <laughs> conditioned uh, human collector, but it, you know, th- that was my motivating factor to get what I wanted. So I'm gonna be very clear. The goal was to get information. The goal was to get intelligence. And I thought this was a better way to do it uh, by being genuine. So I forced myself to be genuine knowing that, okay, this is going to work out better in the long run. I'm going to get a better reputation. People will, will, will be more honest with me. I won't have to deal with many, as many lies and tricks and whatnot. But at the end of the day, I always have to remind myself that I have a purpose here and it's not to make friends. It's not to, you know, rebuild the nation. It's to gather intelligence, to find out about attacks and car bombs and all these other things are going to happen ahead of time. So we can, you know, hopefully save some lives. Yeah. So one of the first things when you're running source operations, you got to realize is that, you know, you're this, figure of authority um, with some people, regardless of what walk of life they're in, and they're looking to get something from you. Otherwise they wouldn't have either, you know, agreed to meet with you or whatnot. 
And um, they're going to want to make you happy whether they can or not, because they think I'm going to get something out of this, whether it's monetary protection. Maybe they think they're just connecting themselves with a new power. And, and in, in the Middle East, they're very used to this. If you were in the government, like half of them were spies. So you kind of latch on to one of them. And that was kind of a safety net for you and your family. So you, you got to test people because, you know, they're going to want to give you answers whether or not they're true or not, because they don't want to let you down and you to kind of cut them off. So I'm, you know, I'm meeting with someone, it's the first time and it's like, hey, you know, you, you're from this area, there's a bunch of bad things going on. If I just said, hey, who are the bad guys? And they didn't really know at the moment or whatever, they could have just given me an answer just to, because they don't let me down. So you got to start off with asking things that you know that are not that serious. So it's like, okay, well, who's the, who's the local imam and, and, and what's the, like a, the, the local mosque and, and what are people doing for work? And you just go through these atmospherics that you already know the answers for because you've done your homework. And you see if they're being honest, even with those. They're not even being honest with those. And it's not a good, probably not a good sign you want to kind of move forward with. They can't be honest with like the basics and they're making stuff up, then that's not a good sign. But then you kind of start asking things that like don't even exist. Like, oh, there was like this big attack last week and like they blew up this like supermarket. And it's like none of this happened, by the way. You just make something up like that. And if they're just going along with it, oh yeah, that was the the Wahhabis or that was she, and they're just going, then you know right there you got someone who's you know, either A, they just, they're trying to lie to you to begin with, or they just don't want to like, you know, let you down. Like, I don't even know about that. Cause then you're like, oh, well, you're no good to me. You're going to go somewhere. So you kind of got to go through these tests early on with people to see how honest they really be for good or bad reasons. And then, and then you start testing with like real stuff. Like, okay, well, there actually was an attack last week and you do know about it. So do you know who did it? Do you know where the weapons came from? You know, blah, blah, blah. You know, that kind of, you know, you've, you've gone through a couple of steps. You've got someone you kind of feel like you can trust now. And then you can start kind of giving them things, you know, you can start, you know, whether it's monetary things or like a badge that helps them get in front of a line for like some food or whatever it is, you can start kind of giving that and building that relationship, giving them some information that's not, you know, obviously not our secrets, but stuff that will help them out. Like, oh, they're going to, they're going to form a, there's going to be a job fair next week where they're going to hire a bunch of military people. Just be at this place's point and be there early and you'll, you know, you'll be able to get a job and stuff like that. So you got to start offering things to make people's lives better to have this kind of relationship, you know, kind of work out. But as far as like creating the environment where you meet people, that's a, that's a tricky thing. You have to be very creative because you can't just drive through the neighborhoods as a, they don't know your intel, but they know you're a soldier or whatever you are. I had like nothing on me. So I wasn't always clearly a soldier. I didn't have any name tags or anything that was, uh, you know, identified who I was. I wasn't always in a Humvee. I was in civilian vehicles and stuff like that. So even if I just showed up somewhere, I could just get someone killed, you know, if, if I'm not good about it. So you, you find reasons to go into the, into the, you know, into neighborhoods, you, you know, you, you bring food and you kind of, you know, you know, pretend you're like, you know, civilian affairs, whatever it is, you go to like something that got blown up and they're fixing it. You just kind of hang out and kind of scope who's helping out and just kind of watch. And, and eventually you kind of identify some people that look like, you know, either they're a you know, person of authority or they kind of know what they're doing or they're, they're invested in helping the situation. So people who are invested in helping the situation might be invested, be willing to invest in helping the situation from a different angle. And so you find those people and you find a way to like, Hey, meet me later. Here's my card. You know, can you email me? Can you call me? Here's a, here's a small cheap cell phone. If they don't even have one, you know, you have these little burner things be like, Hey, here, take this, give me a call later. We can figure out what else we can do for your neighborhood. And you try and like, you know, figure out a way to safely meet them so it's not a risk for them. And that's always a challenge, but, uh, and it's a, it's a slow methodical process. Building a source network in a, in a zone, in a combat zone is not an easy thing. 
Um, but you just got to kind of cast a wide net and and slowly kind of uh, close it in and see, you know, who can pass each kind of layer after that. And then you end up with a couple of guys you really trust. And, you know, then then you can start tasking with things that they don't know about, but they can go get for you. And, and I'll tell you, this this is a funny story because, you know, you know, I'm this Intel guy. I'm attached to this like infantry battalion. They don't really know what I do. They think I'm like CSI. So there's like an attack that happens and they're like, go find out who did it. And I'm like, all right, I'll send my sources like, no, drive down and like find out who did it. And I'm like, no, that's the whole point. The whole point is for me, the white guy, not to drive into the neighborhood and start asking questions because no one's going to tell me anything. The whole point is I've got the source who can drive into the neighborhood and ask questions. They're going to be like, oh yeah. And they're just going to talk to this guy. And they're like, no, I think you just want you to drive in and ask questions yourself. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll do that, but I'm going to do my thing too. <laughs> That was a little bit of an education process for the the actual military side. They just weren't used to having you know an asset like me and my team and stuff like that. So had to had to kind of do a little education on there. Like, look, we can provide you a lot of stuff, but it's not it's not CSI. I'm not going to tell you like where the shooter came from, like by measuring it out and doing schematics and and drawings. I'm going to ask my sources to go and find out, and we'll we'll come back and write a report. That's one of the things that I also try to explain to people is. In building rapport, we need to make sure that the level of the ask is going to match the level of rapport. And it sounds as though you were being sent in with this huge ask with no rapport. So you have virtually no chance at gaining the information until you've built up the correct level of rapport with your targets. Yeah, exactly. And and we would have people do walk-ins, they just come to the gate and be like, oh, I have information. And like right off the bat, like we, we know that like, that's not the way to do it because they just want money or, or whatever it is and you, you gotta you gotta deal with it talk to them hear what they have to say. like everyone knew where plutonium was or knew where the you know weapons of mass destruction was so we had the people like who literally had to just be dedicated to like dealing with that on a daily basis we rotated so it wasn't all you know the same guy all the time but literally just hearing the same nonsense over and over you have to do it but not a, there's no rapport there's no really intel it's just kind of a a mandatory thing building rapport and going out there is really just being out there and 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 just exposing yourself to a bunch of different situations where you can you know start some sort of human interaction and you're just you're doing the math in your head the whole time about who's you know who here <laughs> has some sort of placement access to something or could or is reliable you're just you're constantly analyzing uh, and it, which is an exhausting thing I'd come home. I mean, it's also the desert. It's hot as hell. You're in all this gear, but the mental exhaustion from constantly analyzing everyone I was dealing with is just, it's almost, uh, you know, I mean, I almost have migraines at the end of the day. And this is something that later in my life, like I don't necessarily can turn all this off. You know, I, I'm not, it's not the same level now, but like I'm constantly kind of doing the same thing when I'm like, you know, in a room full of people where I'm instantly kind of analyze the situation. I'm like, I'll just stop that. Or I'm going to end up having a headache and I'll have to leave and be in a social but hopefully nowadays people aren't like out to kill you when you're trying to get the information today. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not as much at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, not even close. <laughs> I wanted to circle back to one of the things that you said early on in that story. I know some people either don't know the difference or they're going to conflate sympathy with empathy, but you mentioned how you had empathy and you were empathetic with the people that you were talking with. How do you have empathy or understanding for people who are trying to kill you, trying to kill your fellow soldiers? How can you have empathy as they're telling these kinds of stories and understand where they're coming from, where some of their goals might be to kill you? 
Yeah, yeah. So, the, and this is this is a, a scenario I dealt with quite a bit actually, and I'll I'll, I'll go into a story, a couple of stories afterwards probably. But the empathy part is you got to compartmentalize yourself in the moment and say, okay, let's say I was back in, I will say Massachusetts because that's where I was originally from. I'm in Massachusetts. Let's say someone invades America, and I'm there in Massachusetts and there's an occupying force. And I was, you know, a young 21-year-old before I joined the military. What would I be doing? Would I just be sitting around and be like, okay, well, you guys won, so we're just going to give up and we're not going to fight back? No. If someone was in there threatening my family or, or I thought they were threatening my family, I would fight. And so I, the empathy comes from respecting that this is something that someone would do if they think their family is in danger. And how can I expect them not to? Do I like the fact they're trying to kill me and, 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 and do those attacks? No, of course not. But to act like it's somehow wrong of them to think that an occupying force came into their area and they should just roll over and, and do whatever we say, especially if you know there are incidents where our soldiers were not behaving well and there was stuff where people were hurt. How could you possibly expect anyone to do that if you wouldn't do that? So you got to compartmentalize yourself in the moment as hard as it is and say, forget the fact that this person would, you know, might kill you if you guys were alone and, or try to in, a, in a, a different situation and say, I'm going to just forget that for the moment because what I can get out of the situation is something that can hopefully save lives and, and, and stop more of that violence. And so you really have to push that to the back of your head. And, uh, and you, you do have to deal with those things later. You don't just, that doesn't just go away. You have to kind of decompress and kind of go over some things. But, you know, the source operations part, you're not dealing with as many people who are actually trying to hurt you. Some of them may be doing that to, as a cover to eventually try and kidnap you. And that, I dealt with that. But the, the interrogation piece is one where, by all means, you know, someone was captured during the attack, during an attack or during an operation. And then, you know, I come in to, you know, find out more about the cell and some other things. You know, those are people who, you know, I could actually could kind of see, I call it being switched on. If someone had been involved in violence, they have that kind of adrenaline rush. They have that kind of, uh, they're just kind of a different zone when that happens. And when I come into that situation, I just remember thinking like, yeah, this is someone that would hurt me if they had the chance. And again, you got to compartmentalize that situation and say, you know what, the, you know, as much as this is, could be scary for me or intimidating or what, which wasn't, I mean, I, I was never really physically intimidated because of the situation, but just knowing that, you know, for some people rattles them. And so I'd say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make the best of this. I'm going to deescalate this. Um, they expect me to come in and start screaming, yelling, and and you know doing things that kind of scare them. And this was never my style. I mean, it, it was very businesslike. And I would I would tell them very much the story I told you just a second ago. Like, hey, you were just involved in attack because you know this is your homeland, and we're not you know we don't belong here according to you. And this is this and this. And I just talked through this and be like, look, I get that. I don't really I'm not going to judge you on that. And uh, but here's the deal. You know, you just there was just this massive attack between you, your guys, and my guys. And guess who got hurt? A bunch of civilians. So is this really good for anyone? Like, how about we just do something to stop this violence so that no more civilians are getting hurt in kind of the crossfire and try and come from like a business angle almost. Like, let's let's figure out a, a, like something to make good out of this. And you're going to go to jail for a while, but maybe if you make, you know, help me on this and we are able to, you know, stop some of these violent altercations, then, you know, I put a good word, I write a letter or whatever, you maybe serve less time, maybe get early, whatever it is, and kind of make it very business-like. And it really throws the people off guard when they know they're in a lot of trouble and you don't come in and just try and scream at them and boil and like bowl them over. And especially physically, I'm not trying to say I'm physically intimidating, but I, but I'm not someone they expect to come in and be very logical and reasonable. They expect me to come in and start smacking around. So like that. that was just never the case. I really like some of the things that you've described that make you a human lie detector. Describe some of the, the patterns that you might use where you're, 
trying to get some simple information out of them at first and then throwing them some deliberately false statements to see if they catch on to those. One of the other things that I've heard that some investigators might do is after they tell the story, have them tell the story backwards to see if all the details match up. Is that, that something is, that you've done as well? That is exactly true. Um, people rehearse it in their head. They, they memorize it. They don't memorize it backwards. They have a very hard time. The only way, the only people who can remember it backwards are the people who lived it because they visually or however they remember it, they can go back and whatever. If they just remembered a story and said, okay, I was uh, first, I was here, then I went here and then I picked up Johnny and then I went to the store and then I came home. If you, you memorize that over and over again, but you didn't do it backwards, you will have a hard time getting that one right. So that's one we definitely use. Uh, another interesting one I picked up, and this was one that's not in any books. Um, I, I'm pretty sure I came up with this. It's a very niche and specific scenario, but you have people who are lying about who they are. So you're in certain parts of the country or world, they don't have like a US ID card that's like a very official and has holograms. They literally have these paper things that are laminated. And it's like, you know how hard it is to make fake ones of those, right? So everyone's got these fake IDs. They've got a different name. They got whatever. And so the first thing you're trying to do is steps, who, who is this person? And, and do they have any reason to give you the real name? No, they don't. So they, a lot of people will go in and out and whatever, but I figured out something. And so one of the things I realized is that when people are lying to you, um, they don't want to get caught in the lie because that'll make things worse. So they want to lie just enough to kind of get through the situation, but enough where they can remember it and not get caught in it. Cause as soon as they're caught, it's kind of a, you know, they, they you're onto them and then you're going to dig deeper. And so I would ask, and this is a pattern I found out, I would ask, you know, their, uh, all their siblings' names, their kids' names, everyone in their household's names, and they'll give the first name honestly, but then they'll lie about the middle and last name because they've come up with this whole lie about this. They'll give the year of birth right because it'd be really hard to remember like 10 different birthday years. It's going to be hard to remember, you know, five, 10 different names. So remember the first name right, and then, and then the other one's their father and their grandfather in the Middle East. So it's like easy to kind of remember that lie. But what I did is I had access to this oil for food database where just based on first names and dates of birth, I could look them up and find out their real name and then find out their, their name, their address, all this other stuff. And so I used that, like I came up with that and I started using that. And I literally, anyone who came in and lied about their name, either I'd find out who it was, or I'd be like, well, look, you're not even in the database. So here's the thing. You're not even Iraqi. You're probably a foreign fighter. So you actually don't have any rights. Uh, and since no country is calling to, for you to come home, no one's ever looking for you. You're really just not going to go anywhere ever. You're just going to kind of be here, not ever going to court, not going to wherever. Saudi Arabia is not calling to get you home because you're not a citizen of there because you're not in any citizen records for Iraq. So I guess you're just stuck for a while. So good luck with that. And eventually realize, oh, crap. Yeah, like I, I got to belong somewhere for someone to, <laughs> you know, give me some sort of right to something or trial or whatnot. So, so that was the other thing that worked. But the pattern with the name thing I thought was really interesting because, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I just would assume everyone would lie about everything. But I, I you know, I quickly learned, no, they're, they're honest about the first name because they, it's easier to remember the lie and and because they, they asked asked a lot and, and it was kind of a, a way to just bust through that because all of them had fake IDs and uh, up you know and they were getting away with it until I kind of figured that out and then I spread that out. Yeah, that must have been a little bit of a scary experience for them when they have the U.S. military sitting across for them saying like you don't exist anywhere. Nobody's trying to find you. You're going to stay here not for a while but maybe forever. Yeah, nobody's really looking for it. I don't know if that's something that you want to do, which I guess then can make it a little bit scary for them. Yeah, one of my duties. So, I, you know, like I said, I did source operations. I mean, I did everything. But as an interrogator, I was assigned to foreign fighters specifically at first. 
So it was literally people who were coming from Saudi Arabia, Syria, whatever. And the whole thing for me was tracing how they got into the country, where the staging was outside of country. So we could like go into those countries and stop, like stop that from happening. Because those, that was the true Al-Qaeda cell, those people, the people coming from all these other countries. Uh, the people in Iraq, we would prefer that we, you know, refer them more like insurgents. Like, you know, you're just in your neighborhood and someone comes in, you pick up an AK-47, you're not a terrorist. You're just an insurgent or, or, or whatever. It's, it's not an act of terrorism. But when you're internationally traveling to come and blow yourself up or, or do whatever and martyr yourself, like that's more along the lines of like, you know, actual terrorist cells and they were being recruited by Al-Qaeda members. So that was like a real focus to get to differentiate those people from the Iraqis. And the other part that's really interesting is these foreign fighters would come and then they'd see the Iraqis just not really fighting all that much and not doing the same level of effort, not being nearly as savage. And they're like, what the, what did I come all this way for? I'm ready to die for you guys. And you guys are like just drinking coffee every day, chilling out, not really doing much. You don't, there's no trenches, no like constant attacks. It's like, you know, a little bit here and there, but so they were really let down and disenfranchised. And so they would then turn around and be like, well, this was a a big wash. This is a big waste of time and end up talking to me too. <laughs> and with those people, was there any relatively easy way to cut off their source of funding? Because I would imagine if they're not getting paid, they don't want to be there. Um, well, the foreign fighters were, no, they were literally coming to be martyrs. So there was no money. There was no, yeah, no, they were, this, these, this was like the real people who were willing to lose it all to, to go, you know, be martyred. So, so they weren't getting anything there, but the, but the goal is, is they were being recruited from certain mosques, certain universities and, and certain, you know, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, whatnot. And so the, the goal was more to like, just break up that recruitment process in those host countries. So, so getting the information enough to kind of disrupt that and, and disrupt the, the way they get smuggled in and things like that. That was a real goal of that. There, you know, there, there was some fundraising and the money would go to the families of the martyrs to a degree, but I mean, there was no interest in trying to, you know, stop that from happening because at least the families are getting money in that situation. Do you have any stories or examples of situations where you were able to prevent some kind of big attack that you knew was definitely going to happen based on the intelligence that you got from people? Yeah, so we actually had a number of, of incidents like that where, um, so one of the big things was car bombs, but there's a certain type of explosive that Iran brought in that would, it, it penetrated through through armor pretty easily. But after a while, after the whole kind of beating the street and just kind of meeting people, shaking hands, kissing babies, giving money out, doing whatever, and then finally ending up with a group of people I recruited that, that were, were trustworthy and would do things for me. You know, I, I hooked them up with cars and cell phones and GPSs and all these other things and trained them on how to, <laughs> training people how to use a GPS is interesting. I, I learned that you can't really train um, someone in a foreign language very easily to use a GPS because they think it like takes a photo when you like hit the button. So I would just really train them to hit this button three times, hit this button once and hit this button and just do it only when you're on target and don't do it any other time. Um, <laughs> and that would be the only way I'd get a successful kind of GPS grid for wherever it was. But yeah, we stopped, I would say maybe 10 car bombs during that, during uh, my initial deployment. And then there was a bunch of those uh, specific locations where they had those Iranian projectile uh, kind of explosives that we kind of got early warning on. Um, and that was a matter of them, you know, being part of the cells to a degree, joining the you know, meetings, finding out about stuff, and then coming and let me know about it. And after a while, it became, you know, we could electronically communicate really easy. We could text, we could email, we could do things like that. So I could, I could find out things pretty quickly. 
there was also, you know, just rounding up the the regime early on. So a lot of those guys would go find those guys and they're hiding out in like, you know, mechanic shops and these weird places. So we'd look for them for that. Weapons caches was a big thing too, finding out where weapons caches are. Um, but the, the car bombs and, and kind of those types of attacks, those are the big ones in my, in my book. Those are the ones I felt best about because those just wreak so much havoc on everything. Probably had about 10 of those over the course of that first year I was there. One of the things that I've been seeing in some of the, the stories recently with Ukraine and Russia is OPSEC situations. Did you ever run into situations there where you saw that they were bad at OPSEC and ways that that might have helped you? Uh, you're talking about the uh, the other side? Uh, yes. There yeah, there was some pretty bad OPSEC on certain things. So um, one of the cases I was on was a case of a missing soldier, Sergeant Maupin, who uh, they did a proof of life video and then they did an execution video. And what we could do with that video was actually quite a bit. Um, we spent a lot of time in that video and going through different technical resources to filter out lights and, and find out shapes of like the background. So we figured out where it happened, where the video was, the people in it, we got, you know, measurements and all, I mean, everything you could do to kind of break down the human, their, their physical traits. So, you know, one by one, I, I found those guys that were, were responsible for it. And, you know, obviously they're not, you know, didn't want to admit that right away, but you know, you got a video there and they got the height, weight, you put them all next to each other and you show them the picture and you have them lined up the same way. And you're like, Hey guys, like we, you know, the crew's back together and they're just looking at you like, uh, we probably shouldn't have videoed that that way, <laughs> which that's an interesting story too, because they, they did execute the soldier and we were looking for the remains and they knew if they admitted to it, it's basically admitting to murder. So there's just no reason they should ever do that. Uh, their cell leader was a, a pure sociopath, Abu Doha, and he wouldn't admit like who his daughter's name was. He wouldn't admit his family. I would show him records from the record government on like his whole household. And he'd be like, nope, not me. Guy just like no shame, no, no sympathy, no, like no emotion was just really cold. So um, after a while, what I did, and this was him and I, it was like a mental battle, you know, of, of like, he was just like, I'm going to beat you. I'm, you're not going to, you're not going to. So what we did was we were monitoring their, their communications outside, outside the prison, you know, because if you shut off communications to the outside world, you don't know they'll find a way and you, you don't know. So we, we kind of let them have a way to get communications out where they didn't think we knew, but we did. And then um, we did this whole thing where we, we convinced him that one of the other people told us where the body was. And so he sent a message out to get it moved because he just so badly did not want me to find it and did not want me to win. He just, he, this guy was again, pure sociopath. Uh, he didn't want me to find it. So we sent out the message to move it. And then, and then we just were tracking and we followed the guy and that's where we found it. So that was one where we just kind of had to use his sociopathic, narcissistic, you know, mentality against him, and it, it happened to work. But that was that that was like a long time into it. That there was many white hairs from that whole situation for me trying to talk to those guys. And so when that was finally over, that was a giant relief and a giant, you know, just success, at least for me personally, to just have gotten through that. You mentioned, uh, you know, human lie detector, whole nonverbal indicator deception. I'll just comment on one thing there that I, I, I did all the training on that. There's no one thing that tells you when people are lying. It's really just more of you get a baseline, you talk to them, you ask them questions that you know answers to, and you see how they respond. And then after a while, you start seeing deviations from that and you kind of get that feeling. But when people tell you, oh, they looked up and to the left when they said that, well, that doesn't mean he's lying because that's just me what they're doing. Or maybe they had an itch or there was something on the ceiling. You just kind of get a baseline and it's a, it's a 
a thing where if you just talk to, if you just talk to a lot of people all the time, you just end up getting up on the pattern recognition thing. And, and people who are good at that or people are good at picking it up. A lot of times on my podcast, I, I speak to the practitioners in the field, the social engineers, the OSINT investigators. It's not very often that I get to speak to a CISO. So I often like to get your perspective on the field of social engineering. What do you see as some of the biggest social engineering threats today from a CISO's perspective? So one of my big concerns right now is developers. I feel like developers are a target for a very easy way of getting bad things in your environment. Um, the way we treat them as mercenaries, the way they're contractors, or we hire people around the world, we, we cut them loose. You know, it's just, it's not a great relationship where they're like really brought into the company and treated in a good way, I feel. And I feel that's a giant risk because I've seen interviews with, with ransomware teams where their phishing attempts didn't work and they just started reaching out and, and offering them money. And that's, as a human guy, that's the early stages of recruiting people. You know, it's a, they don't have the skills yet, but they could get those skills and they could get people who could recruit developers to think they're not even necessarily involved with the bad guys. You know, they, there's all the things that people could do to recruit them and get bad code in your environment. And I, 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 have, I just feel like that is just a, a thing that it's happening in some places already. You know, there's backdoors being put into products all the time because certain developers are, you know, being paid for by whether it's nation state or other, you know, business, you know, competing businesses. It's so rarely caught that people won't think it's a real thing. I know it's a real thing. I did it. Did it a lot. Never got caught. And so, when, so you know, when I, I hear people talking about, and, and not to bash on people doing physical pen tests, uh, that's a thing, but I wouldn't bother. With, I mean, I personally, if I was trying to get to your crown jewels, I wouldn't try to go in the front door. I'd find the guy who's already in the front door and I'd work on him. So I wish from pen testing and, and physical pen test standpoints, we would actually start like a, like a, a fake re, uh, recruitment test. Because that's, I feel like, a, you know, a more at least complete form of a test. Yes, do the physical part. But then have a campaign where you go after a couple of developers and a couple of VPs and see what kind of information you can get from them. See if you can get them to, like, be your friend and start giving up some goods, you know, about trade secrets or whatever or, or, or whatnot. Or get them to click a link once they're on their system inside the network. So I, I feel like, that, you know, that's something that is, is really just kind of no one thinks it's a thing and it's a thing. So are you really advocating for having some phone call vishing exercises, stronger phishing exercises that are targeted and, and really speared or, or well vishing after targets? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's it's whaling and vishing, but it's not for uh, a session where you're trying to get them to do something. It's to like build a relationship for the long game. It doesn't necessarily, when I say long game, it still could only take a couple of weeks, but you can win someone over and, and have them convinced that they're, maybe they're doing a good thing by giving you some information. It's, it's a very effective thing. If you know that person's motivation, you know their weaknesses, maybe they're lonely, maybe they're broke, maybe they're whatever, and you come in and you solve some of that, you're a friend. And when you come, and eventually when you come to them, whether they're witting or unwitting during that process, there's things you can get people to do that are against their best interests. I did it a lot. <laughs> you know, it's, it is very doable. And, and people think like, oh, that will never happen. No, it happens all the time. It's literally what it did. My, my, my whole career was getting people to do things against their best interests. And you think like, like, well, that's really hard. No, it's not. It's not even nearly as hard as you think. So things that, not necessarily the full recruitment process, but at least the, like the early stages of it, like, hey, these people started engaging. 
that should be enough. They can stop, they can stop the engagement and just be like, hey, out of the 20 people we started with, like 10 of these people we actually had conversations with. And then five of those people that lasted for like the two weeks. You know, this is something that could have turned into a friendship. This could have turned into a relationship. And that's what we need to know about because if someone can just force relationship with your people, they can start getting other things. And have you had thoughts on how to protect against that sort of thing? Yeah. So, you know, there's no tool, there's no like magic silver bullet. It's, it's the basics. It's the principle. It's least privilege. It's, it's immutable infrastructure. It's your checks and balances on merge and pull requests and people actually looking through what happens. It's, it's the basics. It it, it really is. It's, there's no new tool that I'm going to say can solve this. Um, but it's, you know, making sure that no one can do things that no one else really knows about. Or if, if data is pulled, there's a, you know, there's a, some questions are asked because of that. The whole point is you get someone that's supposed to be playing with the data, when and how and what they do with it. All that should be stuff that you have some data on. So if all of a sudden there's a USB drive in your environment, you should know about that. And it shouldn't be allowed and have some alerts for that. So it's, it's the basics. It really is. But we are so bad at that and we're so trusting. We just assume, well, the lead dev wrote it all. So what, well, you want them to leave with it all? No. So it's not that you have to treat them poorly about it. You, you know, you still have to treat them with respect, but then make them understand like, this is our business. Like where this is everyone's livelihood. The whole company is relying on this. And if this gets leaked, like everyone could lose their job. So don't take it personally that we, we don't want you to just be able to, you know, copy this code into another repo without questions being asked. I mean, it, it involves a delicate conversation so people aren't hurt, but it's a legitimate thing that, you know, people should understand like, hey, we're just trying to protect everyone here for the business. And Chris, do you have any upcoming conferences or presentations where people can check you out? Yeah, I'll be in the, the Texas Cyber Summit, I think in September. Um, I think that's about it for right now, though. Well, this has been a whole lot of fun. Thank you so much, Chris Russell, for joining us today on the Layer 8 podcast. No problem. Glad to be here anytime. Thank you for listening to the Layer 8 Podcast. Please join us in Providence, Rhode Island on Saturday, October 8th for the 5th Annual Layer 8 Conference. The Layer 8 Conference is a 501c3 nonprofit organization as designated by the United States Internal Revenue Service.